I'm reading from the New International Version, and I'll be taking two readings. The first is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, then verses 20 to 25. Love the Lord your God. These are the commandments, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates verses 20 to 25 in the future when your son asks you what is the meaning of the stipulations decrees and laws the lord our god has commanded you tell him we are slaves of pharaoh in egypt but the lord brought us out of egypt with a mighty hand before our eyes the lord sent signs and wonders great and terrible on egypt and pharaoh and his whole household but he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. <coughs> the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before our Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. The second reading is from... Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 to 17 stand firm but we ought always to thank God for you brothers and sisters loved by the Lord because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ so then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. We thank God for his word. Can everyone hear me okay? Good. Well, now that we're getting settled into the manse, um, we've been able to do a little bit of exploring beyond the bounds of Hampton Park. And on Tuesday, even though I've lived here for years in this area, I discovered for the first time the very beautiful Beaver Park Golf Club. And before you start to wonder, oh here, the new minister spending his days teeing off on the green, let me assure you, I wasn't there to play. You've probably guessed by now I'm not much of a sports person and I'm definitely not a golfer. 
But being at the golf club got me thinking about today's sermon. Because golf clubs, well, they're places of tradition, aren't they? What I know about golf clubs, you could probably literally write on a golf tee. But I do know that for golfers, convention is important. And of course, convention and tradition can be a really good thing, but not always. Let me give you an example. Maybe you've heard of this. The Augusta National Controversy. Augusta National is one of the most prestigious private golf clubs in the United States. And if you follow golf, you probably know that back in the early 2010s, it was the focus of some controversy. And the controversy was over whether or not to admit women members. Now, you'll be pleased to know they did eventually. I wonder, does anybody know who the first woman member was? Anybody want to shout out? Well done. Top marks there to Tim. Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State. Well, what interests me this morning is not the controversy itself, so much as how that controversy was reported on. Listen to this. In an academic paper that was written at the time, the two opposing sides in this controversy were described like this. Those in favor of women as members were the agents of change. And those who opposed were called stewards of tradition. That's not a familiar phrase to us. Stewards of tradition. And it got me thinking. Isn't this how the dynamic between the church and the world is often categorized? On the one hand, we have modern culture, the agents of change, all about disrupting norms, dismantling institutions, breaking free from the shackles of the past. And then there's the church, the stewards of tradition, fiercely resistant to change, clinging to a bygone age, increasingly irrelevant and out of touch with modern life. I think that's the general perception out there. The church just needs to get with the times. Well, in today's sermon, I want to challenge this stereotype, this analysis. And more importantly, I want to redeem that phrase, stewards of tradition. In fact, paying attention to our readings for today, I want us to think about two questions about tradition. The first is this, what good is tradition anyway? And then secondly, what does it mean to steward tradition well? So let's begin with that first one. What good is it anyway? And here I think we need to acknowledge right from the start that we all follow traditions, whether we are aware of it or not. In his book, You Are What You Love, isn't that a great title? The Christian philosopher James Smith argues that we're all shaped by traditions, daily routines and habits that we participate in all the time. For some of us, some of us like those of us here, those habits might involve religious practice, the daily liturgies of prayer, Bible reading, fellowship. But what we don't always acknowledge is that there are rival liturgies at play in our lives. Smith calls them secular liturgies. Cultural practices that shape and influence us in ways that we don't even appreciate. 
It might be as simple as going to Farside and participating in the liturgy of the market or swiping through social media as your act of devotion or maybe any other thing that you do almost every day. Now, don't get me wrong, Smith is not saying that we shouldn't participate in these things. He simply wants to alert us to their liturgical power. And if we're going to resist this power, then we need to participate in the customs and traditions of the faith. That's why in Deuteronomy 6, God does more than simply give his people words to remember. He gives them things to do, practical ways to learn. We read that they're to creatively wear the words of God in their hands and on their foreheads. They're to write them on their doors. And of course, you know as well as me in other places of the Hebrew Bible, we learn about feast days, about sacrifices, about other rituals that they are to participate in that will give shape to these words of God. You see, God knows that as creatures of habit, we need habits to remember that we are creatures. We need traditions to form us, to shape us into that story that tells us something other than what the world teaches. I love those words right at the end of Deuteronomy 6. That's why we included them in our reading. Because God preempts the question that is always inevitable with children. It's a question I think I got asked almost every week in the classroom. Sir, why are we doing this? Well, God says we're to tell our children we're doing this because we're part of a story. It's a story of rescue from slavery. Whether that's Pharaoh for the ancient Israelites or forest for us or anything else. It's a story about liberation from the chains we put on ourselves and the chains we put on other people. It's a story that tells us we are of greater worth than we could ever otherwise know. So when we ask what good is tradition anyway, we don't need to look much further than Deuteronomy 6. God tells us that tradition is for our lasting good, to paraphrase the words. He says it's something that gives us life, makes us alive. It enables us to walk rightly in the world. I like to think of tradition as like a skeleton that gives the body its form. Without it, we can't do very much. Now, we know this in our individual lives, I think, but we also know it in society too. Western culture has been shaped by the Christian tradition and shaped in very profound ways. One of the great ironies of this false dichotomy between the agents of change and the stewards of tradition is that Christianity has given modern culture so many of those values that the supposed agents of change treasure. Values such as human rights, freedom, democracy. These are Christian foundations. And the question now facing us as a culture is whether or not those values can be maintained without those Christian traditions. And for that reason, our calling in this place is more vital than ever because it's our job to be stewards of the tradition. 
And this brings us neatly into our last question. How are we to do this well? And with this question, we turn to our second reading, Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians. Now, it's important for us to remember, Paul would have been raised in the tradition of Deuteronomy 6. As the young Saul of Tarsus, he would have known the Shema that we heard, that great prayer of the ancient Israelites, off by heart, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. These words would have been implanted in him by the customs and all the traditions of his people, the very traditions encouraged by the writers of the Hebrew Bible. And so whenever we get to the reading that Mark read for us in Thessalonians, when he tells the church there to stand firm and hold fast to the tradition, we might reasonably assume he is advocating for stewardship in the Augusta national sense of the word. Don't change, he's saying to them. But that's not what he's saying. In fact, that would be to ignore a very obvious fact. It would be to forget that Paul is writing here, not just as a, an ancient Jew, but as an ancient Jew who believes that Christ is the Messiah. He is writing hundreds of years after those words of Moses. In fact, he's writing in a different language. He's writing in a different, to a different people, in a different place, in a very different culture. And so Paul's call to hold fast is not a command to resist any change. It's actually an invitation to this group of Jesus followers. It's an invitation to creatively reimagine the tradition in a new context. Now, on Friday, um, Lynn and Emma and I were at a conference at Assembly Buildings listening to Dr. Anne Zaki, whom I mentioned earlier, telling us about the church in Egypt. And it actually was, I promise you, a really exciting morning in Assembly Buildings. That doesn't often happen. It was exciting because the church in Egypt is alive. They're responding to serious challenges. They describe themselves as being sort of surrounded by a circle of fire, threats on every side. 20 million refugees have arrived in Egypt from all different countries in Africa and in the Middle East. And they've responded to these challenges with creative and courageous ways. At one point, Dr. Zaki told us that one of the reasons the Egyptian church is so vibrant is that the very first missionaries who were Presbyterian had the wisdom to know that they needed to entrust the Egyptian people with the tradition. They didn't come to impose their own Western mindset. And I guess we need to ask, what does all this mean for us at St. John's? It seems to me that for us to be a faithful steward of the tradition means to participate in a continual negotiation between our past and the present, between continuity and innovation. You see, if we're to live with confidence in today's world, continuity with our past is vital, isn't it? We need to be reminded of who we are, where we come from. But if we're to live with relevance in today's world, then innovation is necessary. We will need a holy imagination to know how to adapt our tradition 
to a changing culture. One of the great modern historians of the church was a man called Jaroslav Pelikan. And he wrote about tradition. And he encouraged us to think of tradition as distinct from traditionalism. You should have his words printed for you in the order of service. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's good. Tradition, he writes, is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Isn't this what we want here at St. John's? We want to live in the best of our tradition. We want our faith to be alive, an authentic faith that is engaged with the world. And we want our children and our young people who are right now at a Bible class in Sunday school, we want them to look at us and say, whatever they have, I want it. Because what they have is real. And as stewards of this tradition, it's our responsibility to pass on to this next generation something that's good, something that's life-giving, not something that's burdensome. And that means we don't come here just to go through the motions of religion every Sunday. We come here to be real, to be real with ourselves, with each other, and to be real with God. We come because we know that we don't have it all sorted. We come because a lot of the time we're hurting and we're broken. We're feeling lost and we're feeling weary. We come because we know we need a word of life. We need to pray. We need to worship. We need to be connected to this story of who we really are because it's a story we're always at risk of forgetting. And let me say that all of this requires trust. It requires honesty and authenticity in this community and in how we practice our faith. Let me offer just one final illustration before I finish. And you'll be relieved I'm off the golf course with this one and back on safe literary ground. And this is an illustration I borrowed from a preacher I love called Jack Ruda. And in a sermon he once preached on tradition, he referred to the title of a novel by Flannery O'Connor, that great Catholic novelist. The novel's called Mystery and Manners. Mystery and Manners. You see, good stewardship of tradition, he argued, should involve attention to both of these words, to the mystery and to the manners of our faith. If we live only in the mystery, if we only have theology sorted, if we have doctrine and ideas, but we don't have manners commensurate to those mysteries, then the mysteries will just become talk and they won't shape our lives. And if we just have the manners, we've disposed of the mysteries, well then the manners will lose their bite, won't they? They'll lose their richness, their power, their weight. And we'll be left with that dead faith of traditionalism. But that's not the faith I want to pass on to Esther and Daniel. I don't want to give them some heavy bags that they drop and leave behind as soon as they're out of their parents' sight. I want our children to go out into the world with their own faith, a faith that's real to them, 
That same faith that gave me courage to step out of teaching and into ministry, the faith that on my best days animates me and excites me, makes me feel alive. But I have to be honest with you as well. I've known Sundays when it's been all about the manners and the mystery has left me cold. And I say this to you because I suspect some of you might know that feeling. If that's the case, then all I can say is that it's the responsibility of the rest of us here to walk with you, to help you. Because if our community here seeks after the living faith of those who've gone before, then we can live in expectation of something good. We can live in expectation that the spirit who is alive will be at work in this place. And that means that those of us who might be feeling a bit detached, those of us who might be feeling a bit numb, can expect to have our hearts softened again. We can live in anticipation that this mystery we celebrate will come alive in our midst. In those moments when our soul catches fire by a word preached, or a line sung from an old hymn, or a silence savored. We need the mystery and the manners. I think that's what it means to be a good steward of tradition. So as we seek to do that, let us pray that God would help us as we seek to steward this holy responsibility he's given us well, for the sake of ourselves and for the sake of our children. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.